Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I would think that uh, dignity necessarily includes a sense of freedom. After mere survival, freedom is a goal for all humanity. But what does the word freedom actually mean? What is freedom? Is it simply freedom from, or is it freedom to? We have an especially significant subject for discussion today. In an article in The Nation, the genuinely deep question is asked, what is freedom? The subtitle of the article is, A Personal Reflection on How a Generation Tested the Meaning of the Word in 1968. I believe every human on Earth wants to feel a sense of freedom, but what is that? Does its meaning transcend time and culture? Is there a universal meaning? And how does it figure into the social and cultural upheaval which reached a zenith of sorts 50 years ago in 1968? How can politics be limiting or enabling of freedom? How central to real freedom is the personal experiencing of art as an integral component of our lives? Our guest today is the author of the article, Arthur Goldhammer, a writer uh, and translator who has translated more than 125 books from French. He's an affiliate at Harvard's Center for European Studies and writes wildly, widely on French politics and culture. And the French student worker uprising of 1968 figures prominently in any serious discussion of the meaning and lasting impact of that pivotal year. Arthur Goldhammer, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Uh, I'm glad to be with you. In his 1941 State of the Union address, President Franklin Roosevelt proposed four fundamental freedoms that people, as he thought, everywhere in the world ought to enjoy. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. And though we are still far from that, I think it's a, it's a good start in defining freedom. It seems to me that largely thanks to the unprecedented freedom from want in which our baby boom generation grew up in 1968, we could and did have the base from which we could test the limits of the meaning of the word. As you write, our parents suffered the privations of the Great Depression and the anxieties of World War II. From their discipline emerged a world of prosperous plenty, sicklied o'er with the pale cast of gray flannel conformity and lonely crowds. We wanted more, end of quote. 
Now, 50 years later, people may not know what is meant by that gray-flanneled conformity, which we found so repugnant. But there was a large, solid middle class, and it seemed the American dream was a reality for a lot of us. So what was so lacking in that comfortable level of gray-flanneled conformity freedom? Uh, well, uh, that's really what my article was about. It was uh, this vague uh, yearning for something different. Uh, the parents' generation, uh, the post-World War II generation, uh, had gone to work. Uh, they uh, found themselves in a, a corporate culture that uh, uh, paid them well, allowed them to live better than any previous generation in the history of the world had lived. Yes. Uh, but uh, the price of that was uh, a, a certain discipline uh, that we mm. began to chafe at. We who grew up on uh, rock and roll yes. and on the freedom that came from uh, years on, uh, on the campus and then in graduate school, um, often, uh, in my case at least, paid for by uh, scholarships. So uh, we had uh, an extended... Uh, childhood, adolescence, yeah. uh, and youth uh, that allowed us to uh, explore in ways that our parents had not been free to explore. Definitely, and uh, we did we did explore quite a bit and uh, pushed from there. Uh, it, I wonder; it may have begun this sense of pushing the limits of the definition of freedom in the early twentieth century with the. Uh, largely French movement, the Situationalist International, the movement headed by Guy Dubourg uh, regarding turning the streets into theater. My, my sense is that they and the Dada art movement were very early progenitors of the freedom sought by our 1960s counterculture, sensing the dehumanizing wrought by industrialization and rigid conformity. They pushed freedom into the streets. And the, the, as you write... The French student worker uprising of 1968 displayed what you call a spectacle of so much public passion, unbuttoned and unbridled. What is it about spectacle that so exemplifies uh, the meaning of the word freedom, do you think? Uh, yes, well, I, I think you're quite right to bring the situationists into it. Uh, the society of the spectacle was uh, the object of Guy Debord's criticism. It's uh, the title of uh, his most famous book. And he was really uh, a, a critic of uh, the society, the spectacle. He felt that uh, citizens had become too passive, were not engaged in exploration of uh, what the limits of freedom were and of pushing those limits back. Uh, so street theater became a kind of counter-spectacle to mount against uh, what politics had turned into in Boer's mind, which was uh, a mere politics uh, of the spectacle in which citizens... Uh, no longer participated actively, but simply watched their politicians uh, as if they were actors on a stage. And uh, that was part of what we, uh, in our youthful naivety, uh, uh, were reacting against in 1968. Of course, at the time, uh, we were unaware of that history, or at least I was. Yes, I know. Uh, <clears throat> since then, uh, a number of people who have participated in 68 have written uh, histories of of, uh, of the prehistory of '68, as you brought out. Uh, I think of Griot Marcus, for example, who's uh, oh, yeah. not only an eminent critic of rock and roll, but who has written about uh, uh, Guy Debord's work uh, and its relation to the revolts of 1968. Oh, there's a lot to look at. Yeah, you know, you would think we'd 
have looked at it by now, but I don't. I, I think it's been sort of pushed aside. People haven't wanted to look at it, and, just, and as you certainly know, uh, Arthur Goldhammer, uh, you know, the, pushing aside history, erasing history, is very important for the dominant culture. The the Yippies Youth International Party uh, <clears throat> exercised the concept of turning streets into theater. And I believe some of the May 1968 French graffiti also said, under the paving stones lies a beach. Under the paving stones lies a beach. What was meant by that? It seems like there were a couple of things anyway. Uh, Well, it referred to the uh, uh, common idea that uh, the beach is pleasure and that uh, paving over the beach was uh, a way of enforcing the kind of discipline that I referred to before. Uh, of course, the students in 1968 were uh, prying up those paving stones and hurling them at the police, yes. <laughs> which was uh, one of the uglier sides of that revolt. It wasn't all exploration of freedom. Some of it was uh, uh, violence. Uh, violence uh, met with counterviolence on the yes. side of the police. Yes. Uh, so uh, that uh, that was the immediate reference to under the paving stones, the beach, uh, there was actually sand under the paving stones of Paris. Yes. At my first visit to Paris, I uh, uh, visited the Rue uh, Sac, which was one of the streets uh, in the Latin Quarter where those uh, old paving stones had been uh, torn up. And uh, in August, when I arrived, they were still torn up. Oh, uh, the street was still uh, not repaved. <laughs> it has since been repaved, but without the paving stones, which provided such uh, convenient ammunition for the student <laughs> rioters. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Arthur Goldhammer, who's written uh, an article for The Nation called What is Freedom? A Personal Reflection on How a Generation Tested the Meaning of the Word in 1968. Uh, you write, success emboldened us, not, and not only in France. For example, in March of 68, President Lyndon Johnson shocked the world, announcing he would not run for re-election. As you write, change appeared to be contagious. We might therefore be forgiven for thinking that we had scored political victories, end of quote. Well, our relentless protests out in the streets seemed to keep growing bigger, and it seems we did score some political victories. Did we not? Well, yes. uh, As you well know, uh, it's uh, still a controversial matter about uh, why certain decisions were made uh, in the Vietnam War and so on. Uh, what I was referring to specifically there by the illusory character of our victories was uh, uh, that in France, uh, in the month immediately after the student uprising of May, there was a, a massive countermarch by the Gaullist uh, uh. Uh, supporters. Uh, a million people turned out in Paris, uh, far more than had occupied the streets during May, uh, and uh, returned a, a large majority to the parliament in favor of the Gaul. Right. And then uh, in November of 68, uh, Richard Nixon was nominated for mm-hmm. the presidency here. Uh, so it was a, a turn to the right, uh, it, despite the uh, decision by Lyndon Johnson to uh, yes. begin the process of negotiation in Vietnam. So it was in that sense that I meant that the victories were illusory. There's also a great deal of controversy over uh, just how much the uh, uh, the student or, or the entire anti-war movement uh, influenced uh, decisions about the Vietnam War. There were uh, failures on the ground. Uh, yes. It was the resistance of the uh, North Vietnamese and the uh, the Viet Cong in the South 
themselves that uh, really drove the decisions about the war much more than the, the protests at home. But I, I don't want to minimize either uh, the effect of those protests and uh, the uh, the way in which they made it more difficult for the American government to uh, uh, continue on its course. Well, silence is uh, complicity, as is often said, and people were not silent back then. And it does seem that, well, there's that old... Uh, rule that uh, to every action there's an equal and opposite reaction and it seems that the uh, the wild tripping hippies in the streets scared a lot of people it did and I think it played very well into uh, Nixon's campaign and even uh, George Wallace's campaign uh, that year that people were afraid of that and uh, wanted uh, a sense of uh, a sense of security people stirred things up and there was that uh, reaction to it, for sure, and it keeps going on. I mean, that's just the way history works. And certainly ever since the 50s, the racist right wing in America despised rock and roll. Uh, the threat of black and white teenagers dancing together. <laughs> they called it jungle music because it was basically African-American-based blues, and they were racist. Interestingly, the American obsession with youth rippled across the world with a very attractive image of freedom. As you write, they, people across the world, people in France, dreamed of California beaches and reinvented Elvis in their own image. The 60s rebellion thus hit the far-flung archipelago of post-war Americanization like a wave of colonial uprisings in which young Americans joined the natives in rebellion against older versions of themselves. Rock and roll penetrated the Iron Curtain far more effectively than did Radio Free Europe, end of quote. And as Chuck Berry said, and I recommend this movie to anybody, uh, in the movie Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, the very last line of the movie is Chuck Berry saying, rock and roll is the sound of freedom. In what ways might that be true, do you think? Um, well, uh, yes, you make uh, a number of good points there. Uh, I think it's important to uh, realize that uh, uh, although rock and roll was uh, associated with uh, black music and therefore aroused the ire of uh, American racists, it was also rapidly appropriated by white groups. And uh, the 60s were also the time of the uh, the British invasion, yes. uh, the rise of the Beatles, uh, uh, the uh, uh, surf music uh, from California, uh, all of which... Uh, uh, tamed and domesticated the uh, uh. the African American influence on the music, so uh, it became uh, the music of a generation rather than uh, uh, the subversive, uh, rather than uh, retaining the subversive meaning that it had begun with. Yeah, uh, and as such, it uh, carried with it uh, an image of uh, America into the. Uh, and the the uh, the freedom of American youth uh, behind the Iron Curtain, as I wrote in the passage that you just quoted. Yeah, and it it does see you write about the uh, calming it down. You know, the the corporate uh, interests got a hold of of rock and roll. They could see it made money. I mean, Ed Sullivan, for example, had no idea who the Beatles were, but he knew that it was popular, and so it was about money and. Uh, but it does seem that still today, 50 years later, the world has somewhat negative impression of a lot about the United States. But our music, our blues music, our jazz, our culture, that's what the world still loves, in my opinion. 
Now, talk about scaring people. You know, it, at first in the 50s, it was black music uh, and, and white teenagers dancing to that on American Bandstand and things like that. Now, Timothy Leary scared the crap out of the older generation. It strikes me that LSD was about expanding consciousness, pushing the accepted bounds of freedom. It was smashing through conformity, allowing oneself to leave the gray-suited earth behind and freely explore the universe. Uh, This aspect of 1968 seems to be uh, something very little talked about, but my sense is, and yes, I was there, it was an integral part, and it had something to do with expanding the understanding of what freedom could be. What are your thoughts on this, Arthur? Uh, well, uh, yes, I, I agree that that was certainly a part of it. Uh, the, as the phrase goes, sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, uh, were a part of the essence of the 60s. And this was uh, also part of the uh, reaction on the part of the older generation that I, I wrote about. Uh, I mentioned the French political theorist uh, Raymond Daron, who uh, thought that the hedonistic side of the 60s was uh, actually the dominant part and was and rather, rather scoffed at the pretension, the political pretensions of the 60s generation. He said that we were the victims of uh, a lyrical illusion mm. and that we were merely reenacting uh, uh, in the mode of uh, hedonistic pleasure seekers uh, what uh, previous generations had lived as actual revolutions. And he was thinking of the long series of revolutions that had uh, marked French history since 1789. Uh, so uh, yeah. that hedonistic uh, aspect of the 60s was certainly an important part of our experience and uh, I think drove, uh, it, it, it was the uh, source of the passion uh, that was behind the uh, exploration of freedom that uh, many of us thought we were engaged in. I, I, there, there's always been the question of how much of the so-called 60s was mere frivolity. That I mean, I remember thinking back then, in about 1971, that it seemed like only about 15% of us cared about political and cultural change. Everybody else was carrying on the tradition of prior generations. They, you know, they they wanted to, dare I say, get high and get laid and then move back into the suburbs, get a good job and drive a nice car. And that was pretty much it. But it always, as you know, only takes a minority to make political change. I wonder how much of it. I mean, I th- the LSD, I think, sure, for some people it may have been uh, just a ha-ha good time. But other people did take it seriously and did some real spiritual exploration that got outside the bounds of, you know, traditional Western Judeo-Christian religion and looked into to spirituality and personal uh, liberation. We, your thoughts on that? Well, that was a, a part of the 60s with which I had very little contact, uh, the, the spiritual side of things uh, uh, growing out of the drug culture. That uh, did not appeal uh-huh. to me in the slightest. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I would distinguish between the uh, political change aspect of the 60s and the cultural change. I think Definitely. you're quite right to say that uh, political change was of interest uh, to a small minority, yes. but I think the cultural influence of the 60s extended well beyond that uh, 10 or 15 percent who were uh, deeply involved in, in politics. Uh, I myself was not, uh, was only per- 
peripherally uh, involved in politics, uh, more as a, a student of right. uh, political life than as an active participant. Uh, I marched in demonstrations, but was never uh, a leader or uh, deeply engaged in uh, uh, you know small uh, political group activity. Uh, I was part of uh, a mass political movement, but nothing more than that. But in the cultural realm, I think that for yes. many of us, it did begin a long period of living differently from our parents. Uh, I spent a number of years living, uh, even after college and graduate school, uh, living uh, in small groups. Uh, calling them communes would right. probably be going too far because we didn't have that uh, uh, ideological push behind it, but we did... Uh, want to live in a different way and uh, delay marriage, delay having sure, kids, right. allow ourselves uh, more space and time to uh, uh, explore other ways of life. Now, uh, uh, in the end, uh, most of us did uh, fall back into some yes. kind of professional activity and into a more traditional style of life, but we certainly uh, extended the period of our experimentation beyond that of uh, uh, most people in previous generations. Well, that's a good point, and and some of us, anyway, continued to have some of the uh, late 60s values and ideals uh, carried with us into the professions, into uh, teaching and politics and, and many different things. Now, certainly, again, no question, it, it was a minority uh, that, that uh, carried it forward and they cared about such things. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is the art, uh, the author of the article, Arthur Goldhammer. The article is, What is Freedom? A Personal Reflection on How a Generation Tested the Meaning of the Word in 1968. The article is in The Nation magazine. And uh, the, as we said before, the right in the 50s fought very much against integration, fearing loss of white dominance. Today's right wing abhors immigration by people of color. There is no immigrant crisis. There is a racist crisis, in my opinion. I think it's interesting that we expanded our palates beyond, as you say, Friday brisket or Sunday ham. And instead, we expanded to welcome the food of many different cultures. As you say, the variegation of the sociocultural universe was mind-blowing. Children of the burgeoning post-war suburbs, we fanned out into the ever-widening world and shared with one another the pleasures of discovery, end of quote. And that certainly includes food. It seems this cultural aspect of this period certainly has had a lasting impact. And today the Republican right still fears and fights mightily against multiculturalism. I think they are losing, but what do you think? I, you know, culture, I believe, precedes politics in terms of change. Have we largely won the culture war, and just just reacting to that. What are your thoughts about cultural change that started then, and it seems to be uh, pretty pervasive now? Your thoughts? Uh, well, if you had asked me uh, two years ago, I would have said that we had won the cultural war, but uh, right. I think we've seen uh, with yeah. the election of Donald Trump and uh, what's happened since that the backlash, uh, at least, is quite severe. So maybe uh, the victory is... Uh, not quite as secure as we had thought. I'm still fairly confident that in the end, uh, uh, we have won the cultural yes, war, I think so. if only because uh, America's uh, demographics have changed so right. dramatically. So, uh, like it or not, 
the uh, former majority in America is going to have to adapt to uh, cultural change. The the mixing is now uh, so advanced and so uh, so great that uh, it's become irresistible. But I think we're seeing a last gasp of resistance yes. uh, since 2016. I think uh, also the other point that you made a while ago about uh, carrying those values of the 60s yeah. uh, into the professions in which we finally uh, wound up working is a very important one. Uh, that, too, is an aspect of the, uh, the continuing cultural influence of the 1960s. Uh, and I think many of us have tried to keep faith as much as possible with, uh, with those values. I, I think so. I do think so. And it doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, certainly our generation, the baby boomers, did not achieve as much of a change as many of us would have liked. I mean, the fact that we have Donald Trump. Uh, but I'm hopeful that the new generation uh, will, you know, they look to a lot of that uh, idealism. And I, I think some of them anyway, a lot of them, are carrying it forward with regard to gun safety and things like that. Uh, I'm pretty hopeful for that. Uh, certainly history... Right there. Go I, ahead. I, I think there's some encouraging signs out there about the younger generation. What I do worry about is that uh, they have uh, neither the, uh, the time uh, nor the uh, economic freedom that we have to explore uh, those changes that they would like uh, to make in their own lives. Uh, we see some of it coming back now, I think, with... Uh, uh, the uh, mobilization of young people uh, in opposition to the uh, current administration. They're joining the resistance with yes. gusto. Yes. Uh, and some of the uh, new and younger candidates that are emerging on yeah, the political scene. Uh, so those are, are hopeful signs. Uh, but uh, those years that we had to explore uh, during college and after college, uh, I think... Uh, that uh, that spirit has largely dissipated because of the economic hardships, so the the tightening of the economy, the uh, increased competition for uh, good jobs. Uh, I think has people working harder when they're yes. in school and having less time to explore things uh, outside their disciplinary tracks. I, I think that's a hugely important point. Uh, can you have freedom if you don't have a fairly large degree of economic security on which to base it. And that's where we were. There used to be, I know people, people today find it hard to believe, when we were growing up, there was a large, solid middle class. There really was. Uh, it, certainly that's, that's gone. It's, you know, it's like a, a gilded age again, except possibly worse. And you know, again, I don't think you can have experience freedom without so, a fairly significant degree of economic security. How significant was the truly historically unique widespread post-war economic security to our ability to reach for a new freedom. How, how, what, what do you think about that? Uh, well, I, I think it uh, was hugely important. Uh, for one thing, the number of uh, uh, young Americans attending college uh, yes. uh, increased by uh, leaps and bounds in those years. Uh, it was partly a consequence of World War II and the discovery by the American elite that they had to open up the uh, the doors of higher education in order to produce more engineers and scientists because uh, science had become the basis of the new economy and of military power uh, with the advent of the atomic bomb and so on. Uh, 
As a result, uh, there was a lot of scholarship money available. I myself was a beneficiary. And the elite colleges that used to admit primarily from private schools open only to the uh, 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 traditional elites of the United States. Yes. Uh, <coughs> the uh, scholastic aptitude test was introduced by mm. James Conant, or with, under the influence of James Conant, who was uh, president of Harvard and also the head of the Atomic Bomb Project, precisely for that reason, to expand uh, educational opportunities. So people like me, who were talented in science and math, uh, found it easy to get scholarships and uh, uh, to be trained in fields that, uh, uh, in which jobs were plentiful. So we didn't really have to worry about how we would uh, uh, earn a living once we were finished with school. And yes. that afforded a uh, a tremendous freedom, a climate of uh, economic security, as you say, uh, that really allowed us to uh, uh, explore our environment in ways that previous generations had not been able to. You know, and I, it's amazing how often the, uh, the topic of Bernie Sanders keeps coming up in many different discussions. He talked about uh, dealing with the tremendous debt that so many college students have, and the, I think the, the prospect of that freedom, that uh, having some degree of economic security, I mean, how free are we if we don't have economic security? And he talked about that, and it was tremendously appealing, I think, to a lot of young people and us, you know, older traditional liberal Democrats as well. And he obviously wasn't able to make it through the uh, machine of the Democratic Party, but that I think that vision, that hope, I get the sense that, that it's still there, especially for young people. And my sense is it's, it's that appeal of, of freedom, of some vision of being able to have some leisure time. And more and more, uh, it's being recognized, I think, that leisure time is really important. Having, uh, certainly, there's more employment available when people work, say, four days a week. Uh, and that that was part of the, the vision back then, to have more time with family, with friends, uh, to be able to be creative. That vision may not be there now, but I don't think it's, it's completely gone away. I wonder how universal that may be. Maybe not universal, but just at least within the United States and a good part of Europe. Your thoughts? Uh well, yes, uh, I think that's a very good point. Uh, I think uh, we've been misled uh, in uh, uh, trying to assess where we stand as a society by some of the measures that we use. Uh, for example, we measure uh, growth in terms of gross domestic product, yes. uh, but we don't measure it in terms of uh, uh, a broader measure of, uh, of human well-being. Uh, there are many other things besides uh, what we earn, uh, the incomes that go into computing the gross domestic product that determine how happy we are as individuals, as members of families, as members of a society. Uh, and I, I would emphasize uh, not just the concept of leisure as an important uh, complement to work, but also the, uh, the complement of uh, uh, the, the idea of time uh, to do things outside of our normal jobs. If you're going to be creative, then you need uh, time to stand back, to reflect, to ask uh, what uh, your ultimate goals are other than uh, 
simply earning a living and providing for your family. Uh, so uh, we need to change the way we measure uh, prosperity, I think, to include uh, this uh, broader concept of uh, what it means to flourish as an individual. A very interesting point. And <clears throat> some some people, I find it fascinating. Uh, it, it does seem that some exceedingly wealthy people are enslaved to their obsession of more, 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 more money. And they they... It seems rather odd to me. I'm hoping that someday it'll be a, a, a diagnosed uh, psychological uh, issue that can be dealt with. Because I think money, to most of us, it's a tool. It's a way to achieve something else. It's not the goal particularly. It's just if you have money, you have more freedom. Uh, what about that You know, money as, as a tool? Um. Yes, well, I uh, certainly have uh, always tried to think of it as a tool and not as an end in itself. Uh, but, of course, it's easy for those of us who earn relatively comfortable livings right. uh, to take that attitude. Exactly. There are many people, uh, as you point out, uh, since the 60s, inequality has uh, oh. dramatically increased in the United States. <clears throat> Among the books that I translated was the uh, book by... Uh, uh, Thomas Piketty, Capital ah. in the 21st Century, oh, wow. uh, which uh, provides uh, hundreds of pages of statistics on just how unequal a society we've become. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, another economist, Raj Chetty, uh, has shown just how immobile a society we've become. People who start at the bottom uh, find it much more difficult to rise. Uh, I think one of the things that distinguished uh, our generation, the 60s generation, uh, was precisely that expansion of higher educational opportunities uh, that I mentioned before. Yeah. And uh, that uh, provided this uh, avenue of upward mobility, uh, which was certainly a, uh, uh, an important component of our concept of freedom, uh, that we were going to live better lives than our parents. I think our children uh, no longer have that confidence no, that uh, no. their lives are going to be better. And uh, that's one of the things that uh, they feel as a, a serious constraint on their freedom. Absolutely. They, yeah, they, they don't have that same assurance. We grew up uh, somehow having an understanding, and of course we'd be part of the middle class. Of course we'd have enough to eat, that we'd have a decent job. But all that has changed, and... And the uh, the dream of freedom is is far away for it seems like the majority of of most Americans and certainly history never moves in a straight line. I used to think it did wrong. It moves in many different directions at once, as you write. Of course, it 1968 was also a year of horrors, riots, repression, racist reaction, bloodshed, assassinations, the Tet Offensive, Quezon. But in our festival of fraternity, we experienced mainly one another. End of quote. Long hair, tie-dye clothes, outlandish costumes. That was a way of uniting the generation. Much as, and I know Abby Hoffman talked about this, much as black Americans in a crowd of whites signaled the unity, we young, mainly white kids, waved in recognition when we saw each other in a crowd. Because, you know, there was some recognition. Yeah, we're, we're here together. Uh, we're not alone. You write that we had discovered the ecstasy of solidarity, the joy. And in comparison to what you called the straight world with the reliable regularity of something made by machine, 
in our world as brave in our eyes as it was new. In what ways was it, as you write, a festival of fraternity? In the context of history, what is the significance of that? Uh, well, Festival of Fraternity refers to an actual event that took uh, place in 1791 in France oh. in the second year of the French Revolution when people from all over France uh, came together and recognized themselves uh, as something that had never existed before, the sovereign people as opposed to the sovereign monarch. Uh, and they actually came mm -hmm. together uh, at a place in Paris, uh, uh, which happens to be where the Eiffel Tower now stands. Oh, and had, uh, they celebrated this festival of fraternity of all uh, <laughs> belonging to uh, a single people uh, and recognize one another as such. And that's my memory of the 60s, that in certain ways, because we stood out, because we saw ourselves as a youth culture, because yes. we separated uh, for a time, uh, uh, seceded in, in some ways from uh, the ambient society mm -hmm. and lived in a world of our own, uh, we were enjoying a festival of fraternity. Now, in some ways, in retrospect, I agree with uh, Raymond Daron, whom I quoted earlier, that this was a lyrical illusion, yeah. uh, that we were deceiving ourselves, uh, that we were uh, prospering because other people were working while we were exploring, yeah. uh, and we were enjoying the fruits of uh, uh, an American dominance in the world that uh, has since waned as yeah. other powers have uh, uh, risen to uh, uh, challenge uh, American yeah. supremacy. So <laughs> it was a unique moment in history uh, from which we profited in a lot of ways that we didn't fully understand at the time. But the emotional experience of it was uh, as a, uh, of a very festive occasion and one that uh, lasted for quite some time. Yeah, interesting how little history we understood back then, speaking for myself. And I will confess, I had not heard of the Festival of Fraternity of which you speak. Uh, and I love history. I love learning about it. People in the 60s basically, I think, in general, knew nothing about the rebellions of the 30s, the sense of, uh, you know, fighting fascism and, and, and a sense of uh, togetherness. Uh, it, it just, uh, we didn't understand history, and there's so much to learn from history. And uh, Right. Well, I, I think that one thing that... Uh, uh, at least for many of my friends, uh, became an important aspect of the 60s, was that uh, we became interested in the history of other rebellious youth movements, uh, and in particular of the history of the European left. So that uh, uh, in the circles in which I traveled, there were many people who uh, began reading about what had been taboo in the United States up to, up taboo, to that point, yes. uh, the history of socialism, Marxism, uh, uh, Soviet communism was supposed to be the enemy, but we began uh, forming study groups to study just what the ideology of socialism was and yeah. uh, what critiques of capitalism had been mounted in other societies prior to ours. So for some of us, it really became the starting point of uh, a long process of learning about the history of other cultures. It was not just in the area of food <coughs> sure. and uh, uh, and foreign travel that we expanded our horizons. We also began to learn about the histories of other cultures. Uh, that, uh, once again, was the concern mainly of a minority, yeah. but for that minority it was extremely important and became the basis of uh, many careers. There were uh, uh, lots of new movements among historians, for example, that grew out of the 60s. There were 
there was a radical history journal that uh, began oh, to yes. be published then, and uh, 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 many American historians began to take a fresh look at American history, to write history from the bottom up, as yes. the phrase went, and to write uh, social history rather than political history, history in terms of social movements and political movements rather than of uh, great leaders, uh, yeah. great men. Great men. Uh, it was a, a different way of looking at the past. That's a very good point, I think. And the uh, the popularity of uh, of Howard Zinn's uh, book, A People's History of the United States, it's taught in a lot of high schools these days. And that, I think, is, yes, is exactly. a fabulous thing. It's a real great thing because, you know, there's official history, which is largely myth, including such things as, you know, American exceptionalism and, and not learning. I mean, specifically not learning the lessons of history. It's it's very frustrating, and you're right. We we started to explore and open the books that had been closed largely to us and looking at, at real history. That's a very good point, I think. And one of the pieces of history back then was the political aspect of, of 68 in particular. There's, there was a very significant break within the anti-war movement, and uh, Abby Hoffman actually said a long time ago that the relationship between the right and the left is perfect, the right is sadistic. The left is masochistic. We tear ourselves apart. And within the anti-war movement, uh, my parents, for example, were certainly old-school liberals, FDR liberals, very much against the war. But the televised image, the spectacle of young people dancing in the streets, running a pig for president, throwing dollar bills from the balcony onto the trading floor on Wall Street, this upset their order. They certainly didn't get it, and they found it disturbing. Were such actions pushing it too far, or was it saying something more, something more important than just this particular war is a mistaken policy? Well, yes, there was much that was uh, unserious about the 60s and, and uh, repellent, uh, not only to the older generation, but to parts of our own generation that we were not particularly conscious of as I discovered after I was drafted uh, toward the end of 68. Uh -huh. uh, but, uh, uh, yes, I think that uh, irresponsibility, uh, which was also a characteristic of our generation, uh, uh, or at least of some members of our generation, was one of the things that uh, turned a, a part of the society against us and uh, figures in the backlash that uh, we've had to confront since then. Uh, I think another important aspect of that backlash is that uh, the split the split that developed uh, in 1968 between the union movement, uh, oh, yeah. which is now largely moribund, and the new left. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the uh, leaders of the trade unions, which had been an important part, part of uh, oh, yeah. left-wing politics in the United States in previous generations, uh, supported the Vietnam War and yes. could not uh, tolerate the fact that uh, uh, young uh, 68ers were so vociferous in their opposition to the war and in their opposition to the Democratic candidate in that year, which was manifested in the uh, riots at the Democratic Convention in uh, August of 68. So that split in the Democratic Party has uh, haunted left-wing politics in the United States ever since that time. Well, that's certainly true. The the split then uh, between the uh, the Humphrey people and you know back then there were people who were against the war and were angry that Hubert Humphrey, the nominee, stuck by his boss, the president, in supporting the war. 
may not have voted for him. And, and that, pff, I think, carried forward into 2016 when a lot of the more idealistic Bernie people didn't vote for the Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton because she wasn't perfect. And, uh, you know, we could go into that, but I prefer not to. But uh, it, it did, didn't the, uh, you know, pushing the edge, you know, they were saying something more, you know, grabbing the attention, the free media uh, of, say, you know, that, that pointing out that it wasn't just this particular war was a mistake, that there was something about American imperialism in general and the system in general. I think that was some important points. I mean, it did obviously scare some people and certainly the, separating the, the working people from the left was not a good thing. No question about that. And it, it was most unfortunate, I think, but there was that whole economic issue that, you know, they had to work for a living and we came from, you know, we largely white kids came from the middle class and uh, that was that was regrettable. Hopefully we can learn from that history. Uh, if you just tuned in, again, Bert Cohen here, Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Arthur Goldhammer, who's written a very interesting article in The Nation, What is Freedom? A Personal Reflection on How a Generation Tested the Meaning of the Word in 1968. We're talking about the meaning of the word as it carries forward and what it meant from 68. And you write, this is interesting to me, Wordsworth had a number. He knew how the meager, stale, forbidding ways of custom law and statute could suddenly acquire the attraction of romance. To older liberals, this romance was suspect. Please say more of what you mean here. Uh, well, once again, I'm harking back to the French Revolution, which is uh, my professional deformation, if you like, since I've oh, sure. spent so much time studying France. But Wordsworth uh, wrote that poem uh, thinking of the French Revolution, and uh, it begins with the uh, uh, the words that it was was a bliss in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way it was in, in 1968. So that's it was, true. again, a period in which there was uh, a rupture in history, uh, a rupture that left uh, part of the older generation very disoriented and bewildered by uh, what was happening, which they didn't understand, and which may be our case today. We don't understand what's happening to us. But for those of us who are young, uh, it... Uh, uh, connoted new opportunities, uh, a new way of being in the world, and uh, uh, altogether uh, uh, a, a change in, in what lay ahead of us. So for us, it was exhilarating, even while our parents were uh, in consternation yeah. at, the fa at the very fact that we were so exhilarated. <laughs> That's true. Well, people you know, that don't have that opportunity to be exhilarated, it's frustrating, let's face it. And, of course, one of the popular phrases back then was, do your own thing. You say that is the very antithesis of the collective action that politics entails. Say more about that, please. Well, uh, I think that serious political change is, uh, involves a real commitment. Uh, it requires uh, dedication uh, of one's life, as I'm sure you know. Uh, and it's slow that... Uh, I, I have come to believe, uh, through long study of uh, revolutions in France, that uh, revolutions often produce the opposite of what they aim to achieve. Uh, uh, that uh, in order to change a society uh, requires uh, a, a, a substantial commitment of long and patient work. Yes. It doesn't happen overnight. And I think one of the things that uh, 
we were deluded by in the 60s was the idea that if only a few changes could be made, if the right person could be elected, uh, if a few senators and congressmen could be changed, if the American policy on the Vietnam War could be changed, then everything else would change in place. And I think that was uh, uh, our mistake. <coughs> Societies have much more inertia than that. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea of, of revolutionary change is uh, really one that uh, misleads generation after generation. Uh, so in part, uh, uh, I, while I'm praising the spirit of 1968, I'm also saying that uh, uh, those who partook of that spirit harbored many illusions. And it's important to shed those illusions. And in uh, recounting our experiences to those who are younger, uh, who still have their lives ahead of them, uh, we need to make it clear that the ways in which we uh, have come to learn our, uh, about our mistakes. Ah, let us hope we can learn from our mistakes. I certainly find it incredibly frustrating that as obvious as the lesson of Vietnam was, hey, imperialism doesn't work. If people don't want that government, they're not going to accept it. We have refused to learn that simple lesson. People, I don't know, it seems like they don't want to learn history. They'd rather believe myth instead, and it's, it's easy for the right to, uh, to impart that. Um, and one of the other, I think, aspects of youth in general is uh, seeking instant gratification. I find it frustrating that many of the young Bernie people, well, we failed, so let's give it up. You know, leave the Democratic Party. Don't bother to get involved. We didn't get exactly what we wanted, so, you know, we're taking our ball and going home. I find that really, really frustrating. I, I don't know what can be done about that. As you say, I mean, it takes time. It takes a lot of time. Any historical change, you know, there's there's action and reaction. It always happens. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how we can convince people, young people in particular, that you know, you're not going to get exactly what you want when you want it. That's the id, as uh, as good old uh, Freud had to say. But uh, it, it, it's, it's well, a... F- yeah, yes, I, but I think there are some hopeful signs. Uh, it, it's Absolutely. true that uh, some young people disappointed by what happened with uh, Bernie uh, left the party or withdrew from politics. But uh, I think uh, quite a large number have... Uh, uh, actually decided to engage in politics and have learned that uh, it does take time and organizing so that we've seen uh, large increases in the numbers uh, of people joining groups like the, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America oh, who yeah. intend to carry on Bernie's legacy. Yeah. Now, I think some of them uh, still harbor the kinds of illusions that we harbored when we were young, yeah. uh, but uh, they've joined the organization and through their participation in that organization, they may come to learn the the hard lessons of politics. Uh, so I think there there are signs that uh, uh, a kind of commitment to the political life that we have not seen since the 60s has grown out of the uh, election of 2016 and the way in which it bitterly disappointed the hopes of many young yeah. people of that generation. I think you're right. That, that idea of the DSA, I mean, there was the SDS back then, which, of course, split up amongst itself and, you know, just got too... It, it wasn't fun enough, and I think people need some degree of, of fun. And certainly there, the, the idea of the common good, I think, is essential. But there are many on the right these days who would say that the common good is the opposite of what they understand 
freedom to be. There's this you know myth of rugged individualism uh, versus the common good. What about their sense of of what the word freedom means and their opposition to the notion of the common good? Well, yes, I think uh, there is an understanding of freedom as the absolute right to pursue one's own self-interest in defiance of the interests of everyone else in the society. There is no solidarity, no festival of fraternity. Uh, It's all uh, uh, looking out for number one, and uh, that is a problem. Uh, That is the problem that... uh, uh, the left has faced throughout its existence, and uh, I think uh, you're quite right to point that out as the guiding ideology of uh, the uh, 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 the, the neoliberal right as it yeah. understands itself today. Uh, yes, they they don't. It, it seems that they. I I find that they've uh, that freedom to a lot of people on the right means gun ownership. That's what they mean. You know, they, they worship their guns as if that not just symbolizes freedom, but is freedom. That concerns me quite a bit. That's quite a different understanding of the sense of freedom that I have. And, you know, the idea of common good, it doesn't have to be the opposite. More people can have more economic security and not be a threat to you. I, I think that's a very old uh, uh, idea that... Uh, I got to get what I want. Everybody else I have to fight off everybody else. That's really a very ancient and primal uh, belief, I think. And now we have, I frankly imagine the 21st century, uh, I was so naive, to believe that more people would have more economic security. And it still can be done. I'm convinced it can be done. And, you know, more people having more uh, economic freedom doesn't take away anybody's freedom but uh it's like this rapacious if you have something you're taken from me i think uh we we have a lot of work to do on that um what about the really overt attacks on on basic you know uh, 18th century american notions of freedom freedom of the press freedom to dissent uh my sense is that many americans don't see this as a threat to freedom. How concerned are you about this drift away from valuing what you and I understand to be freedom? Uh, well, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about, uh, for example, attacks on freedom of the press. I think it's one of the uh, fundamental freedoms. And for uh, the President of the United States to uh, use his bully pulpit to attack what he calls the lying press, using the same phrase that Hitler used in attacking the free press in Weimar, Germany. Yes. Uh, I think that's a very dangerous symptom. I think the attacks on uh, academic freedom are also of great yeah, concern. Too. The attacks on science, uh, climate science in particular, uh, those uh, are, are of deep concern to me. That uh, has little to do with what uh, I wrote about in my article. Yeah. So, <laughs> goes back way beyond the 60s, uh, as you point out, to the, the very founding of the United States. These are freedoms that we in the 60s took so much for granted that yes. we didn't think uh, we'd ever see them come under attack in the United States, and yet we, uh, we have lived to see that day. Uh, we have. Oh, my God, it's so depressing. <laughs> A lot of people are frankly depressed. Uh, but you've looked through, through history at the French 
revolutions that there have been. Do you have some degree of, of optimism? I mean, if you don't, just, just say it. But, uh, you know, I, I feel like there's still this innate, basic yearning, longing for a sense of freedom, for bringing art into our lives. I, I, the people, I mean, art, I think, is, you know, it just exemplifies real freedom, the ability to, to have enough economic security to be creative and to look at things that are outside the, you know, gray flannel-suited work-a-day world. How, how optimistic are you that uh, it's still in the uh, American spirit right now and that, I don't know, we might pull through this and uh, keep striving for what you and I understand to be freedom? Uh, well, in spite of everything, I remain optimistic, uh, perhaps in part because uh, I spend a lot of time in Europe uh, where I think uh, the uh, idea of a robust social democracy is stronger than it has proved to be in the United States. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the things that has concerned me is the uh, uh, rift that has developed uh, since Trump's election between the United States and Europe. Yes. Uh, we used to think of the free world as, uh, back mm. in the 60s, it was uh, largely the Western world that we thought of as free. Yes. Uh, and we thought of the solidarity that existed in the period after World War II uh, between the countries of Western Europe and the United States as uh, unbreakable. Uh, we've seen that that uh, solidarity is not quite as uh, no. uh, 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 resilient as yeah. we had hoped, uh, but... Uh, I think the idea of uh, achieving uh, economic security through uh, uh, concerted political action uh, as embodied in European social democracy still survives. It's under challenge now because of uh, the spread of globalization, the challenges from uh, uh, emerging economic powers in Asia and elsewhere. So that's of concern, but I don't think uh, the idea is by any means dead. Right. Uh, and I hope that what we see in the United States right now is an aberration, something that has taken us off the uh, the arc, uh, as Martin Luther King mm. put it, of justice, uh, bending toward greater justice. Right. Uh, I hope that we will return to that trajectory uh, once this aberration is out of the way. But uh, these are dark times. Uh, I can't hide the fact that... Uh, uh, I often feel depressed, as you yes. uh, as you mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, it does happen. Arthur Goldhammer, uh, article is in The Nation. Fascinating stuff. Uh, can you point people to other things they might read that you have uh, written? You know, perhaps in the uh, well, I've written a lot for The Nation. Uh, I wrote, uh, for example, about Tocqueville's view of the election oh, yes. of 2016, oh. which you can find uh in the nation from September, I think, of 2016. Uh, and if you go to the nation's website, you'll find uh, any number of articles yeah, that uh, uh, I've written for them. I also have an, a regular uh, <coughs> column in the American Prospect, uh, yeah. a journal uh, that politics from the left-wing point of view. Uh, and I have uh, a number of articles in the Democracy Journal. Uh, so those are places uh, right. where you can find uh, my writing. I also have a website at Harvard. So if you Google for my name, uh, Arthur Goldheimer, you'll find uh, uh, various samples of my writing on the web, along with a, a blog that I keep on French politics. So all of these things will turn up uh, in a Google search of my name. Fascinating discussion today, Arthur Goldheimer. Thanks so much. Okay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's what I want now.